Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Does he love me? I want to know. How can I tell if he loved me so? Is it in his eyes? Oh no, you'll be deceived. Is it in his eyes? Oh no, you'll make believe if you want to know. If he loves you so, it's in his kiss. That's where it is. Oh yeah. Or is it in his face? Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that had so much success off-Broadway that they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. My guest today is an alum of the pod, friend of the pod, you know her, you love her. Please welcome back, Jesse Field. Why, it's a sheer delight to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Every time you think you're escaping, I'll pull you back in. I don't want to escape. Keep being nice and trapped. Yes, it's Saw 7, baby. Hey, hey. God, they did make a lot of Saw movies, huh? They did, and I did not see a single one of them. And I saw every one of them because I am a lesbian. A lesbian? You've seen Fleabag, I assume? Actually, no, shockingly. I know, I'm a monster. I need to, it's on the list, but. You know, it's absolutely, well, it's just, first of all, it's fantastic, so it's worth seeing, but uh, for some reason, there's there's a line Olivia Coleman has in the first episode of the second season, and the joke is that she is saying lesbian, but she gets cut off halfway through the word, Uh, like it cuts to the next scene, she goes, the interesting thing about father over here is that his mother was originally a lesbian, and it's... (laughs) great it's great um also apologies anyone for sound quality on this episode for some reason zoom has decided not to uh connect with my very professional uh snowball microphone so i have to use the crappy crappy apple laptop microphone and so i don't know how i sound i know how jesse sounds beautiful and intelligent and magnificent and a, and a little congested today so apologies for that but god it's winter ain't it it is winter ain't it henty uh okay. and besides you know the sh- show we're talking about today there's plenty of congestion here you're so right you're so right man <laughs> Je- jesse jesse field of dreams um what please tell me <laughs> someone's done that to you before i'm not sure field trip is a lot <laughs> no that's stupid <laughs> children are stupid gorgeous. i'm gonna get a sweatshirt that says that you, as well, you should. Jesse Field of Dreams. Uh, what piece of drama 
are we discussing today? Oh, today we are discussing the Heidi Chronicles by Wendy Wasserstein. Show enough. Now, do you have any history with this play? Yeah, well, not really, but ex- except that. <laughs> I really do, except that I don't. Except that I have no history with it at all, except at one point in my life, my my mother handed me um, a, a collection of Wendy Wasserstein's, which just contained Uncommon Woman and also the Heidi Chronicles. And she said, you probably should read this, Jesse, <laughs> as a living woman in theater. And I said, thanks. And one day much later, I did. Yes. I think that the handing down from the mother feels very relevant in terms of what we'll be discussing here today. Was it this one? It was exactly that. Yes. Yeah. This is, um, I am, I am holding the compilation of the Heidi Chronicles, Uncommon Women and Others, and Isn't It Romantic? Yes. When I was in college, we actually read Isn't It Romantic for Languages of the Stage. And I don't know why we read that and not the Heidi Chronicles, but- that is interesting. That's actually the only one in the collection I never got around to reading. And now I don't know where the collection is, but I'll buy it again. Is so like it's also so I'm assuming then you were you've been familiar with Wendy Wasserstein for a while then as a as, yeah. a, as a female writer. As a female writer, which I am also, one simply must be familiar with Wendy Wasserstein. Well, every single female writer that there is, which is one of the humorous things of the opening monologue of Heidi Chronicles. Mm-hmm. It's like being a woman in art, I have to know about every w- woman in art. And the, I mean, the irony of that is she does because no one else will. But she's like, but she's like, I resent the idea that I have to, even though I do. And I agree with that. And also, of course, I do and I want to. Yeah. And it's also, she says, like, it's easy because there are there are many, but there aren't that many documented. So it's like the list isn't very long. There, I have plenty of other of room in my brain for other things. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and as always, Wendy Wasserstein knows what's up. She do. Uh, having now read it. How does it compare to uh, Uncommon Women and Others for you and any other Wasserstein works? Gosh, well, I think she's certainly like, she has a style and she's very herself. The Heidi Chronicles to me, it just feels so personal. Long before I looked up that it was so personal, I think it just like, it rings with a truth that feels very Wendy and it feels very, it's like primal femininity in a way of like like not like I don't know what everybody thinks femininity means but to me it's like a like a a grappling with something in the world it's like something in us and it just speaks very truly to that I think most of her work rings with the truth of like like reaching out to other women Mm -hmm. it has like an honesty to it where I'm like I believe you and also this probably has happened to you and like sorry about it (laughs) thank you for telling me um but the Heidi Chronicles has always stuck out to me simply because I'm like god is this just the life of Wendy Wasserstein like it's which uh, it is I mean (laughs) yeah but before you know that you feel that I think that you can always feel honesty in a piece and that is what draws me to Wendy Wasserstein the most is I feel like she is trying to tell us something because something has happened to her and we should know about it. And then of course, every woman in the world at some part or another goes, Oh God, me too. Yeah. Well, so I think what Wendy Wasserstein is probably one of the 
best, most successful examples of write what you know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They, I mean, that's what they always tell you when you write, um, at least, at, well, first, especially when you start out, because sometimes the issues is just like, you know, God, what, what ideas do I have? What, like, what concepts for a plot could I have? And for someone like myself, where, you know, dialogue tends to come easy, it's the story structure that's a little more difficult. It's harder sometimes to see the forest or the trees with that. And so I always just kind of write with what I know first and then, and then start tweaking things for, you know, other, you know, whatever. But you read Uncommon Women and Others, which is not her first play, but it is, it is her, the first play that really kind of made her known in New York theater, uh, which is interesting because it wasn't like this big phenomenon. It had a small off-Broadway production at Marymount Manhattan with Glenn Close, by the way. Uh, oh, God, really? Oh, yeah. And like it didn't run for years and years. It ran for like, I think, two months in a you know limited run or whatever. But it caused enough of a stir, at least in the play theatrical scene, that it got done across the country and other, you know, regional nonprofit theaters and they were able to make a tv movie out of it with Meryl Streep before she was like like you know Meryl Streep and sort of with each successive play that Wendy did in New York her profile got larger and so Heidi Chronicles I mean I'm not familiar with uh Sisters Rosenzweig which is supposedly some people claim it's a better play than Heidi uh but when you sort of look at Wasserstein's career and then see how when Heidi came out, it just sort of felt like a culmination of, OK, this playwright we've been watching for the last 10 years on the rise. She's good. And each play just gets better and more successful. So now here we finally have something that has crossover appeal. Where uh, not it romantic played off Broadway for uh, almost two years? It actually ran longer than Heidi Chronicles. But in, you know, the Lucille, Lort- Lucille Lortel, which is about a fifth the size of the Broadway theater Heidi Chronicles was at. So more people saw Heidi Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it sort of was a upward trajectory for her where she kind of, the 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 thinking in the 90s was that she eventually plateaued with Heidi and Sisters Rosenzweig, which is not to say that she did poorly, but it's like, oh, she reached the top and then pretty much stayed at the top and then... Uh, wavered and like hovered around there for the remainder of her career but it's yeah and also she died very young so I don't know her career is an interesting one to me also similar to Harvey Firestein with Torch Song Trilogy and I've realized now that the play that I've started writing is actually very much a blend of Heidi Chronicles and Torch Song Trilogy hallelujah she would make her and Harvey Firestein such um, successful writers and writers that can connect to people is that while there is so much truth in it, because it is so much of their lives, it is not, it does not feel like a therapy play. No. It, it's very funny. It's very insightful. And it doesn't punish the audience by being like, uh, I don't I'm, I feel like I'm afraid now to ask you if you've seen certain TV shows at the risk that you haven't watched them now, like <laughs> Friends or Happy Endings. Yeah. I certainly have seen Friends. <laughs> okay. There's that like one woman play that Chandler sees that he thinks everyone else is going to go see with him. Alex Borstein's the like actress of it. And it's called, Why Don't You Like Me? And she just, she shouts at Chandler's <laughs> face, Why Don't You Like Me? <laughs> and there's, and Happy Endings, there's another one where like, they're going to deaf poetry for women. And uh, it's a woman like shaving her armpit. And she's like, <laughs> you made me go to prom. Are you happy now, mom? <laughs> I love plays within tv shows 
Oh, Very yeah. funny to me always. Yeah, I love how TV writers are so condescending to theatrical writers. And they're not, like, fully wrong. I've seen a lot of plays that are like that. Oh, yeah. Not um, by Wendy Wasserstein, but it's yeah, well, so the world. This... <sighs> This is the thing about writing, and it's and it's why whenever I do write like reviews on Instagram, I'm always aware of first of all how hard it is to just create something, and then to have it get put up. Like it, there, a lot of work goes into it, but also anyone could technically put pen to paper, right? We Absolutely. all have thoughts. Yeah, I assume. I yeah, I I certainly do. Although all I know is that I think, therefore I am. I'm taking you on good faith that you think. Jesse, do you really think I've had you on here for a third time? Because I thought you have no thoughts. <laughs> Listen, I was a philosophy minor in college. I have doubts, but... We all... I have such <laughs> doubts. We've all heard you on the Candide episode. We know you know about philosophy. <laughs> God damn it, Jesse. Stop okay, showing your resume. <laughs> what a relief. I'm, I'm like, let's talk about Broadway. And you're like, here are my credentials. Uh <laughs> Not going to get discovered on this podcast, Jesse. If I haven't been discovered yet, you won't. <laughs> I don't want to be discovered. It sounds like a big nightmare. Then people would look at me. Only you can look at me, Matt. Everyone else can hear my voice only. <laughs> I know my you're chin, very lucky. My chin in my hands. I'm so only pleased. You can see my matching plaid and beanie. Your matching beanie, Feldstein. So the, what, so the point I'm trying to make, though, is, you know, many people have thoughts. Right. Mm -hmm. And anyone could technically put pen to paper and start putting words down. Mm -hmm. And it takes a certain level of insight and skill to be able to communicate something to a mass audience. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really you don't want to preach and you don't want to placate and you don't want to punish. Mm -hmm. That's because that's how it, it, Avoiding those traps is how you actually really create a dramatic work that can really hit home and live with people, right? Absolutely. And, it yeah. takes a lot of um, like big picture viewing too, especially if you're pulling from your own life where it's so easy to get wrapped up in things that feel big and like so many points of contention, but you're looking at the Heidi Chronicles, which jumps through so much time and the way in which you like Wendy pulls out the moments that really matter in the narrative and they matter not just because they matter to her obviously it's not literally her but but she knows how to build the arc to tell the story and yeah. as you said earlier it's it's so easy to get lost uh, for the trees in the forest yeah and the thing about this play is like nothing overtly traumatic happens to Heidi at least from what we see in the play you Absolutely. know she comes from a good background I mean the, the whole play is about boomers and might yep. be it might be one of the first american plays to really kind of explore the boomer generation at least you know at that point because this this premiered off broadway at playwrights horizons that's why we're covering it in the winter of 1988 and then quickly transferred to broadway at the beginning of 89 it it extended the playwrights horizons until mid-february they had nine days off before they started previews at the Plymouth Theater, now the Gerald uh, Schoenfeld Theater, Ooh. where it ran for a year and a half. Uh, and, I mean, you think about what it was up against for the Tonys that year. It was up against Lend Me a Tenor, which is, you know, a fun farce that unfortunately has some blackface in it. Then we have Shirley Valentine, which is a one-woman show that transferred from the West End about a... Uh, 
housewife who gets taken for granted by her family and then decides to leave them when she gets to go on holiday with her friend to Greece. And she's like, oh, or maybe it's Italy. But she's like, oh, the world is fun when you're not making tuna sandwiches every day for your husband and stupid titty sucking parasite kids. And she leaves them. And then the uh, the fourth play was called Largely New York, which was a comedy performance clown piece by Bill Irwin. What? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, with it. well, he well, Bill Irwin got his start as like a clown and like uh, sort of performance artist, and he created this piece with a bunch of other performers. They did it at the St. James Theater where it ran for about four months, and that those were the four plays. And of those four plays, only Heidi Chronicles was actually talking about the people who were now the adults who yeah. they had been the rebellious generation. They fought for civil rights and they fought for women's lib. And then we get to the 80s and they either are all making money and doing coke or (laughs) or they're not making money and they're, you know, and they're miserable or or not not that money makes you happy. But like there's so much misery in this generation because they were the first generation to really ask out loud, can I do with my life what I want to do? Can like I make a living doing what I'm passionate about and like making a difference? And their their parents' generation were like, no, you make money to buy food and you and you marry someone because you need to make the babies. For sure. God. And it was a very in-between time. I mean, that recurring question in Heidi is a very old question, I feel like, for women, which is the question of can a woman have it all? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is now an old question, but of course, when it came out, the play is set. It starts and ends in 1989, which was yeah. and it goes back to 65. So it's just funny to think about. We're all on like this large generational journey, and it sort of ends with that thought as well, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, it's just like it's such an it's such a time period, and it's such a way that people felt and women's lib was so new and like we're going through the AIDS crisis and it's like all in this play and and it's such a time capsule now whereas back then I'm sure it was it was the moment that's what everybody was feeling I mean the thing about the play is like it's not it doesn't feel so revolutionary now it just feels so human now and like very and and it's still it still resonates and you're like oh yeah, this is this is still very relevant. It's just no longer like mind blowingly like, oh my god, somebody said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just now like very, <clears throat> it's very true, and it feels like stepping back into that time, which I don't think about all the time. I live in the now, baby. But you know, I love history, and it's it's so potent. Yeah, and I love looking back at the journey it took for all of us to get here. I mean, not that we have arrived fully anywhere. May I note still no equal pay across genders, but what can one do about that? One wonders every day. Well, um, after you get discovered on this podcast, we really will make change. Well, thank God. Then I'll finally do equal pay for women, which I a playwright. It's the only reason I got into the theater was mm. to get equal pay. Um it's a good strategy that will definitely work is how I feel Absolutely. about it. It's noble and it's smart and it's efficient. It's a very good fast track. Thank you, Matt, for noticing. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so I, I knew of this play for a long time. I read it eventually in college after we read, isn't it romantic, which is, 
if uncommon women and others, which I don't think is like, I don't find that play terribly funny, but also I, I've never seen it done live on stage with an audience. Like I've just read it and seen clips of the TV movie. Mm. Uh, there's a little bit of gross out humor to it. Like the thing that sticks in my brain forever is Susie. There's like in a flashback in college in the early sixties and Susie Kurtz comes out and she goes, I tasted my period blood. And I'm like, that's <laughs> an, I'm like, that's an opening line. That's an opening line. You know, you uh, just but, won't forget it. <laughs> no, you didn't. That's not something you forget, but after isn't it romantic is far more of a comedy it's you know a single woman it was similar to Heidi Chronicles single woman can she have it all but it's a little more focused on romance and maturity because she's like you know she she's always like like Miss Wasserstein herself cracking the jokes deflecting doing the things and her parents like well when are you gonna settle down and find a nice mensch and yeah. she yeah and the play doesn't from what I remember the play doesn't end with her like having it all but rather it kind of ends with her letting go of the expectations of it all and Mm. so then she can kind of just start living life and if she finds any of those things great but it's not about adhering to what's expected and Heidi Chronicles I feel like is a little less um it's it's less effervescent it's less bubbly it's still funny uh you either shave your legs or you don't you either shave your legs or you don't (laughs) yeah which I I it's times like that where I'm like, I wish I had an old Brooklyn that, you know, grandmother. I mean, both my grandmothers are from here. One lived in Brooklyn, one lived in Queens, but they aren't like that. Yeah, they shave your legs or you don't. They're, they, <laughs> they drink white wine and scotch. That's that's who they are. That's but true. yeah. But um, the ending of the play is much more sort of, I think, like a realistic and mature understanding of balance. It's... Because, I mean, no one really ever has it all. Anyone who says that they do is fucking lying to you. It's about letting go of the things that you'll never get and appreciating what it is you have and always trying to do better, not for the sake of fulfillment, but just because that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. You know, like Heidi has all these accomplishments by the end of the play. She's she's a she becomes a doctorate of of her field she wrote a book about women in art that somehow was very successful and like kind of was a cultural moment apparently am i but am i making that up i feel like they talk about like her book like made an impact yeah yeah no they do they're on the news show not that she gets to speak on it and they bring it up somewhere else as well the women's lunch i think um yeah well my guests know what that's like to go on the air and never get to speak (laughs) not at all (laughs) I never shut up I feel and yet somehow Jesse I love talking over you and everyone listen you gotta be yourself Matt don't crush your spirit (laughs) yourself be yourself no there's a difference you can again it's all about balance you accept who you are and the flaws that you have but that doesn't mean you say you know, accept my flaws. I'm never going to change. You work on them still. You work Absolutely. on them still. And you learn, well, I think also, gosh, you learn that in life, nobody can have it all because there's simply not enough time. There's no time in every day. You have to pick things. And every time you pick something, you run out of time for something else. This is like the Rachel Carson phenomenon that I alone speak about, which is that when Rachel Carson, marine biologist, was in college, she was paralyzed at a library because she said, if I read this book, that means that's that's like that's one book I won't have time to read before I die. Every yeah. chance I make eliminates something else. 
and nobody can have it all. And I love in the Heidi Chronicles that insane speech she gives at her, I think, alma mater, where she mm-hmm. tells the story of her perfect day where she leaves teaching and goes to an exercise class and cooks a mesquite chicken dinner for her husband and her children and then takes the leftovers to a homeless shelter and has sex in the kitchen and writes 10 pages of her novel. And of course, that's not a real day anybody could ever have. And there were like Absolutely. 45 more things in it too because Wendy Shore can can weave a yarn, I'll tell you. Yeah, she. I remember she included things like uh, learn some more Italian uh, yeah, yeah. Pick a, drops the children off, picks the children back up, uh, mm-hmm. tells her very handsome younger like tennis instructor that they can't be lovers. Like it's we can only be friends. <laughs> yeah, we can only be friends. Things like that. Yeah, it's there's and also like there's so much in life that you cannot control. There are the elements. There are other people. So when it comes to relationship, marriage, kids, like mm-hmm. it's so hard. I've talked about this already before, and I and I will talk about it again. Like. It is so hard to find someone you like who likes you back and you're both in a place where you can be together. That's, it's like like auditioning. It's a numbers game. Absolutely. And it's, some of it is random. And back in the day, and even I would say now, you feel like if you don't find that, you're failing something. Yeah. But especially, I would say at the time for women who have this clock ticking to have children by a certain age and children are also a modicum of success Mm -hmm. and there's like a real liberation from that in the Heidi Chronicles with the ending which of course ends with her adopting a child on her own yeah I think is so empowering because you look back like even at the scene where she's at the this women's support group which is like my favorite scene of the whole play with Fran Mm -hmm. the lesbian who's like my favorite two-minute character in the whole play obviously of course Um, and she's talking about this guy and how she get like she like he is in control of how she feels about herself and I think we've uh, many of us have been there in terms of like letting a relationship define our self-worth whether we want to or not it just sometimes happens like and I don't blame people for feeling that way because it's very easy to love yourself when someone is standing there loving you but when it's you on your own you know, you have to maybe work a little harder or think about it a little different. And when all your friends maybe are all married and having children, are you measuring yourself up to their success? Do you think that's real happiness? Is that real love? But you've got to find it and define it for yourself. And there's no real measure for success, yeah. or happiness, or love. So the the guy that she's referring to is Skip is Scoop. Scoop. Um, Scoop, Scoop. Dumb. What what a what a name. What a name. What a newsman. Yeah, this I love. It's a little on the nose that he's a, when he when we meet him, he's a journalist, and his name is Scoop. Like pretty funny, <laughs> pretty. I silly. got the scoop. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I will say, and I was reading some of the reviews of the show at the time, and the and the New York Times when it was at playwrights uh, pointed on something that I agreed with was like, if there's one real major flaw in the play like we can pick anything apart and i and i think this is a really lovely play my one flaw is i do not get the appeal of scoop and i think when we first meet him he is such a douche like and not in a way where it's like oh like are you are you messy or are you a bastard and <laughs> like i like he just comes out i'm like oh you're an asshole and oh, so i don't i i maybe like it, it's something that i have to see like peter friedman do in the original because i saw the revival and I just thought that Jason Biggs was so uncharismatic in the role that it was like, I, I, you, you need to at least buy what would draw Heidi to him to begin with. I don't know. This is a hot take from Jesse Field because I certainly agree. He sucks. 
and I would never, but then I'm a full lesbian, so he can't trust me. But I think, I think it's deeply true that a guy like that, like we're all, we just fall for the worst people. And from the outside, it's so easy to look at. I cannot tell you how many of my poor beloved straight friends that I have, poor lost lambs that they are, fall in love with these people, these extraordinary women with these ordinary men, no offense, not to stereotype it like that, but I do see it all the time. And I think why this makes no sense, but they're just obsessed with them. I mean, there's that thing like the game, right? The game with the negging and all that shit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But it's it's like the confidence. I think there's that line. Although I was just last night watching the, um, the movie version with Jamie Lee Curtis of the Heidi Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that has now messed up like what I remember to be a play line and a movie line, although they're largely the same, but not fully. Yeah. I can't um, imagine they're that different. It's I mean, it's a TV movie. They they have the yeah. ability to stay pretty faithful to the play. And they mostly did, but there were a couple lines where I was like, that wasn't in the play and I kind of dug it. Um, yeah. Sometimes where I was like, shut up, go back to the play. <laughs> but this part where she's talking to Scoop, actually this is for sure in the play. She's talking to Scoop and she says... Um, I have to find out like what mothers tell their sons that they don't tell their daughters that make them so fucking confident. Yeah. Like, how are you? Where does that come from? And confidence is irresistible. Um, I I believe it. I don't like it for Heidi. It's a huge bummer for me <laughs> to watch her sort of go through that. But I'll tell you, I believe that she's there thinking about Scoop and not Peter, even before she knows Peter is gay. Oh, yeah. Well, she and she knows it she acknowledges it the the thing about Heidi and it's something that I very hard relate to like I I also want to make very clear her situation with Scoop at least for act one because they do get to a place in act two that's healthier for her but because he's also just a fucking mess but the act one relationship I absolutely get because honestly I've lived it i'm i'm coming out there Matt we can all admit it we've all we can all admit there we've all had our scoops but I, they, people always say like, oh, people tell you who they are when you first meet them. And it's like, that is true. But also you don't even, sometimes you don't know that that's what they're telling you when you meet them, right? Yeah. Sometimes they show you the best side of themselves. And the, the very fact that they are hiding the other side tells you all you need to know about them. But you don't know that that's what they're doing in the moment. And it's only over time, once you've got hooks in them and they've got hooks in you, that you start to see the other stuff. And similar to what we were saying earlier, like sometimes it's hard to tell when a person's flaws are things that are red flags or when they're things that you can work through. And the high you get from being loved or being attended to by someone you love and attend to it's like oh i think you're so awesome the very fact that you think i'm awesome makes me feel even better um and like any confidence you already had anything you thought about yourself just gets like heightened it's this big euphoric very much so yeah and so when heidi's in that uh women's support group uh, in the you know deep trenches of women's lib around like 1970 71 uh she says she's talking about scoop right and she's saying you know okay yes he i see him every couple of weeks i usually go see him he dates other women but i'm like and i and i am being treated like crap and they're all like he sucks he sucks she's like yes no she's like he does she's like i'm aware he sucks she's like the problem is not him because he he do suck the problem is is that i stand there and let him do it. He's like, and I can't tell you why. I really don't know. 
but I am aware that I shouldn't. She's like, and and in a weird way, it's sort of like saying it out loud is the, her first steps of being able to get past it. Yes, it's a gorgeous scene. That's my favorite scene of the whole play is that meeting. And I don't really know why. I just love to reread it and read that group of women. It's the way they talk to each other. And they're all like, I love you, Susan. No, I love you, Fran. No, this is the greatest woman in the world, Fran. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, for me, what I like about that scene, because it is a good scene. For, it's very funny, but it's also got a lot of emotion to it because uh, Becky, that's the young one, right? Who, fun fact, at Playwrights was played by Sarah Jessica Parker, and then when really? it moved, to Bro- yeah, and then when it moved to Broadway, was played by Cynthia Nixon. So funny. And then Sarah Jessica Parker took it over again when the uh, later on in the run. So I just love that two of the Sex of the City foursomes played that role. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, or <laughs> series of roles: Becky, Denise, and somebody else. But um, because there's some overlapping or doubling of roles in this show, but they all come from different walks of life, and they're all very different personalities from each other right and i think wasserstein is able to highlight some of the humorous ridiculousness of this meeting while also tapping into the humane realities of their circumstances so like the very fact that they're like when anytime somebody arrives like i'm so happy you're here i'm so happy you're here like they have a ritual that they have to do it's like the i see you i see you i see you and it's um, italicized just so. Susan, it is so good to see you. Hello, Susan. It is so good. So to good see to see you. Yes. You either okay. shave your legs or you don't. And yeah, it's like, yeah. and someone speaks their truth and they go, thank you, Susan. I love you. Thank you, friend. I love you. <laughs> and it's, it's all meant in the name of sisterhood and support and, and having a community. And that's all well and good. But the humor of it is the audience can recognize that this is like something that not that they, even if they mean it, it is a little performative because it's now become a ritual like it's it's just habit now they do it because that's what you do once you're in the group that's what you have to say and that's the humor but then you hear things like becky's whole situation being still in high school and like both of her parents are gone and she now lives with her boyfriend because who else is she going to live with and she has to like go in the bathroom just to think and cry yep yeah, really <laughs> you're like, hey, that's real and it's the whole thing you're right it's playing with this push and pull because it's I would say one of the funniest scenes in the play and yeah. also one of the ones that contains like the the truths that really arrested me my favorite part of it which I just pulled up over here so I could read you this exact line mm. from Heidi which she says she says Becky I hope our daughters never feel like us I hope all our daughters feel so fucking worthwhile do you promise we can accomplish that much Fran huh do you promise do you promise I love that she takes that question to Fran I love that she is like begging Fran the wise lesbian to confirm for her that although we may suffer today like our daughters in the future are going to go further and be more liberated and this is like the beginning of that generational thread for me too Mm -hmm. and it's a thought that I I think about this all the time like how far we can get generationally and like the the things that I'll never be able to let go of in my own psyche. And then thinking about the art I want to make and how I can tell people they're okay. So the next generation can feel a little less terrible. And over time, we're all going to move towards feeling less terrible. One might hope if we make the right art. And I just love the way that Heidi, who like was not really super into this meeting when she arrived is now like begging Fran to promise her (laughs) that their their daughters will feel more worthwhile than they do. And then of course they also love Heidi. I think I think that's something to remember with this meeting because it's early the way that it's structured you know this is we have you know Heidi's first the the play has two major monologues that open both acts where she's giving a lecture on women in the arts 
And, you know, of course, it relates to the rest of the themes of the play. But yeah, but then, as you said, like, we go back from the early 60s through the 80s. And we have her first meeting at a dance where she meets Peter, who becomes her, like, soulmate, even though we eventually find out he's gay, which actually makes him even more perfect for her because the lack of complication of a romance means they can just be there for each other. Um, And, like, with no strings, with no... um, no skin in the game other than the fact that they just both want to be there for each other. And then the next scene is two years later where she meets Scoop and then two years later where we have the women's meeting. But it's interesting you say that that line is like her pleading to Fran. And I think it's true. I think you can also almost read it as not like an interrogation, but like almost kind of argumentative as well to Fran. Because of everyone in that group, Fran is the most like, yeah strong in her beliefs of like what women can be what they should be men suck blah 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 and it can be a little and her whole mantra you either shave your legs or you don't it's very black and white for her like you either are a feminist or you're not you either stand up for yourself or you don't and Heidi doesn't necessarily think of herself as a feminist in this moment the key phrase she has when she arrives with her childhood friend Susan is I'm just visiting uh but I feel like when she turns to Fran on that of like, can you promise that? It's both like a plea and also like, can you promise that, Fran? Sure. (laughs) You're going to hold us accountable. Can I hold you accountable? Because, you know, the truth is that you're not going to, no one of us can make a perfect human, raise a perfect human, make sure that they are (laughs) not not just like empathetic to a beautiful degree, but able to take care of themselves and strong-willed and never get hurt or abused and can love and support and and create and it's sort of really shitty to expect everyone to follow a gold standard when none of us ever can we can keep trying and learn from our fuck-ups and and hopefully fuck up less in the future but yeah i think there's a it's a it's a combination of a plea and a confrontation to fran with that can you promise that Yeah, I totally agree. And that's what's fun about the play too, is there's so much to it. And there are so many ways you can read this. I had so much fun watching clips of the play and also Mm -hmm. TV movie because I want to hear how people say these lines. I mean, I guess that's really the joy of theater. Why we're all, it's so alive. And there's so much here to sort of interpret. Did you say interpret? I sure did. It was a folksy thing, like like a charming, I'm being charming. Yes, you are. Okay, I say okay, Catherine O'Hara. Um, <laughs> you must interpret the text, David. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, in eighth grade English, our teacher, whenever we would study plays, we were not allowed to read them at home. We we had to read them in class with each other because she said plays are meant to be heard, not read. So correct, God. So correct. Uh, and Heidi Chronicles. It's often hard sometimes to get humor from a play. Because a lot of it is in the cadence, it's in the rhythm, it's in the timing. And, you know, when you're writing dialogue in a play that you want to really come across just how funny something is, sometimes you will do like an italicized something or you will say a beat or whatever. But uh, but other times it's like you kind of just have to let actors and directors figure it out in rehearsal and find where the jokes are. And then even and even then you go into previews and you have to wait to see where the audience finds the humor. It's so tricky and it's so tenuous and it's so alive like i've watched so many plays where just different jokes will hear hit different nights and god only knows why what's in the air why this why that 
And you're so right that it changes the whole process because actors will find jokes that you never even could see in your text that are fully written there. And then suddenly that's a joke and your very funny joke is uh, feels very serious now and meaningful. But I'll tell you, that's that's plays for you. And that's why it's great, a play like this, which has both anyway. Well, also it's, there's a, there's a maturity to the, comedy to the stage comedy that happens really starting with neil simon not like not with the beginning of neil simon's career but rather like neil simon found the key that would allow the 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 theatrical comedy to become much more human i don't think he personally perfected it but he definitely like so we have barefoot in the park and odd couple which are these plays about people and a lot of the comedy comes from just their personalities and and the things that they do but he also was a joke machine and he and he was very famous for knowing that a line would get a laugh and if it was being rehearsed improperly he'd be like no 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 you got it you got to say it like this otherwise it will not get a laugh and then starting with plaza suite which i don't know how familiar you are with plaza suite only just only just i did see the sjp matthew broderick revival which was fine but I, I enjoyed myself way more than I thought I would. Right. But the, the, yeah, the first act isn't terribly funny. Uh, the next two are much more classic Neil Simon. The first act is is more of a uh, dramedy uh, of a married couple, like 20 years into marriage or whatever, and on their sort of semi-second honeymoon at the plaza. And it's sad because the spark is kind of gone, but no, the wife is kind is trying to relive the magic of their of their wedding night and he's distant and definitely having an affair and there are jokes you know they both make wisecracks but there is a sadness to it and the jokes do not come from like bada bing bada boom it's it's out of the situation there is a human reason why they are both trying to crack wise because they are trying to break the tension and ease up with each other that is sort of the beginning of that kind of style of comedy because other than that we have who's afraid of virginia wolf where the comedy is just vicious yeah <laughs> i have it's, to be in the right mood to enjoy who's afraid of virginia yeah. well because like you are you familiar with the play the women um yes I th- you gave me the you gave me the kind of look that has like i asked you have you ever saved a baby from a burning building like <laughs> why would i not save a baby from a burning <laughs> no, building? No. it was quite the contrary in fact it was like oh i sort of forgot that existed and now I'm like do I know it is it the thing that I'm thinking of but now the, the women means a lot more to gay men than it means to actual women but <laughs> the that play is so very funny because it's all just one-liners it's jabs and who's right, afraid right, right. of Virginia Woolf is that times 10 like the, like whereas the women it's always like a little bit of a stigma it's like a, oops I pricked you accidentally with my with my pen who's afraid of Virginia Woolf takes a dagger slices your arm open and goes whoops yeah. And pours, <laughs> and eye contact. yeah while making eye contact and pouring scotch in the wounds <laughs> but after plaza suite we start getting these uh comedies in the 70s that are veering away from like the bowing bowing like hey baby like everything's sexy and swinging and their <laughs> comedies are much more about people and then in the 80s we get biloxi blues and broadway bound and now heidi chronicles where it's still very funny but the humor comes less from like, oh my God, can you believe the wit of that one-liner? And more like the, I rec- it's funny because it's true. I recognize that. Yes, yeah, so true. And it's so, it's like, um, 
sometimes it's just charming. I just was lucky enough to see the um to see Merrily We Roll Along at um New York. Theater I Workshop. saw that you saw that. Okay, very lucky duck with a great my own gay best friend, my own Peter Patron who bought me a ticket for my birthday. Um, but one of the most charming things about it, I felt is like, was the playfulness between friends and you get so much of that true, genuine playfulness in this piece. Like speaking of Peter Patron, one of my favorite scenes, of course, is when he comes out to her and they do this bit where she, she's just hitting him. Like he takes her hands and he hits himself with her hands. Yeah. Yes. That's for me being selfish and not saying, and for all these things. And she hits him later and she says, I'm hitting you for not being hopelessly in love with me for all this time. And it's not like it's funny, but it's so like, it's charming because of course, like the scene there, they're learning about each other. And she is a little bit heartbroken because she always thought maybe he was like her safety guy or like her backup marriage, but also she's like, and I want to meet Stanley and, you know, and it's like the beginning of something very true and beautiful. And it's, it's so charming. I feel like to watch friends do friend things. And sometimes you get that with her relationship with Susan, which of course then like sort of ends up the opposite way mm-hmm. where she has that really unfortunate scene with Susan at the end where she's trying to like pitch her a, a movie pilot or like a TV show to work on as opposed to Peter, who ultimately she, she stays for like, yeah. she, that's one of my favorite scenes. Also my second favorite scene after. That might be one of the most, I forgot about that scene and reading it last night before this episode, I was like, Oh, how come we don't have more of these scenes? More of these please. We have so many work. So, okay. Oh God. And I, I need to I need to not talk about this too in depth because this is such a major theme and significant other. Mm. The friendship between a straight woman and a gay man is really hard because especially when they meet when they're both single, right? Because eventually their lives go from parallel to perpendicular and society tends to favor the norm the heteronorm so like more than more likely is that she will get married she will have babies and it's it just gets harder and harder to maintain the friendship uh and you watch them try to be for each there for each other but it's just it just gets more difficult and ultimately in now that we're all sort of in the mind frame of like i have to protect me i have to do what's good for me it's like you any bending you do for another is considered weak but if you care about someone and they really need something from you, wouldn't you try to bend a little bit to help them? And usually that's that's talked about as like, well, the person you're married to, right? Or you're committed to. And it's like, well, what about the person who has been there for you the majority of your life? Can't you give them a little bit? And I think what makes it work in Heidi Chronicles is he's the one who's now in a relationship and she is not. So she she can, but she does ultimately change. She reverses a life-altering decision because he asks her to, because he really needs her. her to. And it's like the value you put on that, because I completely agree with everything you've said. And I even think it's something that you see beyond that. Like I mentioned my gay best friend and I am a lesbian, so I'm not a straight woman de- destined for marriage and children. Thank God, because I don't want those things, but um, very scary. But, um, you know, there's this feeling, I feel like with a close friendship and somebody who means so much to you still that you're trying to build a life outside of that and yeah friends are great and they can help you but you're not like building your life 
around them. And sometimes I think it's worth stopping to think, well, but why? <laughs> like sometimes that's your fucking person and you can, you can make a decision because they bring joy to your every day. It's not worth less because you're not fucking like, it's just, can I say that on your podcast? I forgot. I've said it like nine times already. Okay. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah. Um, but you this know, is this not your third time on the podcast, Jesse. Come I, I on, truly, I have like such a, a bad memory for for everything. You'll learn about all my flaws, Matt, as we become close over time. And one day, you'll ask me to stay for you, and I'll say, "Yeah, okay, sure." And I will, and I will say in response, "Fuck shit, piss." And <laughs> here we are. We will cry and hug and listen to little records and sing songs that we sang forty years ago, like the Shoop Shoop song. I'm so it's glad. It's all relevant to the Heidi Chronicles. It is. It's all in the play. It's all in the plot. And I just love the emphasis that they put on that friendship, which is, you know, like the first scene is not Scoop, it's Peter. And and the first time I read the play, I was like, okay, so I guess that first scene was just like, psych, it's not him, it's him. Yeah. But it's like, actually, isn't that the more meaningful relationship? One could argue it's not, but sometimes I argue it is. And I think, it, I argue it, I think it is the most meaningful in that one it's a shame that peter doesn't get the last scene with heidi yeah. but in a way it's i mean i don't know like the final scene with scoop where he talks about like his midlife crisis and oh this change of heart so he sold his very successful magazine because you know yes he made money yes he had some cultural influence but ultimately it doesn't mean anything and then it turns out it's all bullshit anyway he's gonna run for what like congress or something like that yeah um and so even though, you know, he and Heidi now have a friendship that <sighs> Heidi's friendship with Scoop in the end, because it starts off as a toxic semi-romance. Yeah. Building and, up and... the Act one, which we haven't even talked about yet. The fucking wedding scene is. Crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, that, that's well, that wedding scene <laughs> I would argue is sort of like perhaps the thesis of the play. Uh mm-hmm. Because because nothing is really left answered in that scene. So that's really where the thesis is, I would argue, than anything else. But uh, yeah, they go they go from toxic romance to sort of a toxic friendship. And, th- and then his life, even though he finds success and, and checks off all the boxes, he gets progressively, they both get progressively less happy. But she is not so full of shit that she's actually willing to try to get happy. He's too full of shit to ever know what it is to be happy probably ever again. And they have that final scene where he claims to have this big epiphany. It turns out it's all bullshit. And it's sort of like, not the final nail in the coffin, but it allows her to get less tied to him. Because even if he's not her partner, even if he's not her husband, even if they don't have sex anymore, he's still a little too toxically involved in her life, in my opinion. For sure. No, he keeps showing back up and it says more about him at some point than it does about her. Yeah. He's drawn here that there's something about her that makes him feel some sort of way when he's the one who got in that scene. You know, he's like, I can't marry a 10. I can't marry an A plus because we'd always be competing. Yeah. Like, I need somebody who's going to just support. Yeah. And all, and there's always just going to be disappointment. So that, so we can, you know, we can talk about the wedding scene now. First of all, something to know about Scoop. The lone straight man in the play. <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, we have talked about this a, a bit already. When he and Heidi meet at this uh, event for 
canvassing for this political candidate, they begin this toxic romance that goes over about like two or three years. And then we flash forward like another four years, maybe, or maybe not even that long. Um, Get the little... They list it all so nicely at the top of the play. They do. Uh, because after the women's meeting, then it's the museum where Peter yes. comes okay. out. Or not comes out, but he's already out, but sort of tells Heidi, like, hey, update. I'm gay. I've been gay. And I've been living a very good life as a gay. Yes. Just thought you should know. <laughs> and she goes, what? <laughs> Hers are what? Um, yeah, so... The the women's meeting is 1970. 1974 is when Peter meets her in Chicago and he's like, gay. I'm the I am the far, the first gay. Oh. And, well, and I think she and Scoop are still kind of connected in that way, right? And then yeah. we flash forward to 1977. So three years later, and we are at Scoop's wedding in New York. We're at his wedding. We are at, at it. He so just got married. I'm like, just to even realize where you are after that jump, you're like, oh, shit. And Heidi came and you're like, well, why would this happen? Yeah, why would Heidi go? And listen, three years is a long time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of heartbreak and baggage and healing that probably happened. She claims that she came because Peter wanted to go. Peter wanted to meet Scoop, which also tells you something about Heidi and Scoop, about the relationship that Peter has never met him until this point. Yep. Yep, sure does. And granted, yeah, and granted, you know, this is pre-cell phones, pre-Skype, so it's all about phone calls and letters, no emails yet, or like taking a plane, because for a while, they're all living in different cities, New York, uh, Peter's in New York, Heidi was in Chicago for a long time, but yeah, like, there, there was no meeting. Peter wanted to go to the wedding, which I love, it's sort of like a bit of a, it's a, it's definitely a neg towards Scoop, where Peter's like, I had to see this for myself. yeah. For sure. No, and, and everyone's there. Susan's there because she has some sort of connection. They served in the same internship or something in the Yeah. They're all they're all there for you know different there at this insane wedding where Scoop, like the worst man in the world, says something insane when Peter's like, So are you in love? Because uh, you know, I see two people of your age getting married. I should hope you're in love. And he says, Am I in love? Sure, why not? He says, like, yeah. what a what a monster. <laughs> what a yeah. horrible He's fine, but um, I believe that he's real is the thing of it, but i that's an insane line to me to say at your own wedding, and it's also insane to spend so much time talking to your ex-lover. Well, and so Peter, uh, Peter, uh, Scoop, one of his characteristics in his speech, something that he drops in Act 2 as we get further down the road, and they it gets brought up more sort of jokingly, because it's yeah. like a shorthand for all of them, is he rates everything. One to ten, F to A. Um, oh, so and so, A plus conversation, B minus looks. <clears throat> uh, or like, mm, he he doesn't really rate women on letter grades. He rates them by numbers and not by physicality, but just sort of like their potential. Yeah. And he calls Heidi a ten woman, not because like she's a supermodel but because she is so intelligent she's so funny she is going to do so much and she said she wants she's gonna ambition she's going like to challenge him. him yeah and as he said he can't handle he doesn't want to come home to a 10 he wants to come home to a six and what i think is so great about the play is he marries a woman named lisa and yeah. i love that wendy gives her a little dignity yes, and she doesn't, does. make, doesn't make her the worst mm-hmm. she is kind mm-hmm. she's 
we we don't get a lot of, we don't see a lot of her intelligence but we're led to believe she's not a total dumb dumb and she, she's an illustrator <laughs> an illustrator she's a successful illustrator successful illustrator and the vibe is like and now we will put that away so she can be married to scoop yeah well i love there's because we the uh, there's an about face that peter has when he meets lisa because she's from the south and blah 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 and so immediately he's like oh this dumb dumb especially like oh she agreed to marry this piece of shit what kind of idiot are we dealing with? And when it's revealed that she write that she illustrates these uh, children's books, essentially, and then one apparently had to do with like a hospital and human anatomy, and Peter's now a doctor, he's blown away because he thinks those books are genius. Yeah. And so now his only issue with Lisa is, why did you marry him? Uh, yeah. No, it's kind of it, you're so right about that. Wendy does a great job of not making us like hate Lisa. In fact, yeah. we like Lisa, and I feel terrible for Lisa because, in some ways, you always want your protagonist to like get the guy, I guess. But watching Lisa be married to Scoop, you're just sort of relieved that Heidi's not in that yeah. position, even though, of course, she wanted it. <laughs> yeah, and she wanted it in many ways. A because she and Scoop have this connection that can't be undone unfortunately certainly love uh, is know. there doesn't mean it's healthy but there is love there is love yeah not healthy love but love and many of us do want a person beside us uh it's just it's it helps to have that kind of companionship and there are so many things in life that you want to share with somebody and I think sort of in the back of her brain might have had a fantasy that Scoop could eventually resolve so many enough of his issues that they when they fought, it would be healthy fighting, not like hit my head against the wall kind of fighting. Absolutely. And, yeah. And we watch. We, we, we see glimpses into their marriage in act two as you go down the road and we just see how unhappy they both are. Scoop starts cheating. Lisa clearly knows he's cheating. He, like he's cheating on her during her baby shower like they're about and, to have and everyone knows like everyone I ran knows. into him with this woman like it's not even being kept a secret because he yeah. doesn't need to keep it a secret he's scoop fucking rosenbaum exactly um and so wendy makes us care about lisa because lisa's not a bad person she's a relatively intelligent person she's an she's a kind person she's not the most interesting which no. which i think is also good because it gives us a realistic understanding of why someone would marry scoop like oh she's smart she's not that smart she's nice she's not that nice and it's like yeah that that thing too of like women had to marry (laughs) everyone is like looking to marry and you wonder i wonder for heidi like if peter wasn't gay would she have just married him regardless of like if she really loved him or not at some point are you like i want children i want someone i want to succeed at this thing we all have to succeed at you know there's a scarcity mindset out there and if scoop rosenbaum is turning on the charm and telling you he wants to marry you being his charismatic although a creep as heidi admits but a charismatic creep and Mm -hmm. fran iconically says i fucking hate charisma because it's true, it works. I believe that you could get swept off your feet and make a big mistake. But there's something about, especially for the poor straights out there, I'll tell you, Matt, I, I feel terrible for them every day. Mm. They just are drawn into this trap of marriage because it feels like the ultimate modicum of success. And it feels like once you achieve that, then happiness lies beyond. Although often it's the opposite. Women become very depressed after their weddings a lot of the time because that's like the thing they looked forward to since they were children. And now what do they look forward to? The sweet embrace of death? I don't know. People also will look at marriage as uh, a pay 
a payment of the investment they put into this relationship. It's like the t- all the time I put into you has officially led to the profit of a marriage. Like it was worth it in the end, was it not? We we got we got the married. And got to the married, and now you're trapped in the married. And I hope it was worth it. Yeah, well, because yeah, so many people don't view marriage as just the what rather than asking themselves like does this feel right does the idea of being married to you really give me happiness or is it just that that's what i am supposed to do and i have to justify all the time i've spent on you uh i think what's also interesting though we talk about like would she have married peter and the scoop charm it's good that we see other female characters where scoop's charm does not work susan hates him oh my god (laughs) his charm does not work on her uh there's another woman at the wedding who I, i forget her name but she's there and like Scoop, Scoop does not work on her either. So it's not, it's not like he's irresistible to everyone. Just you know, rather we see two women who it's worked on and how that and how that goes for them. But also, it's not as if Heidi is celibate outside of Scoop. We keep hearing about these relationships she's in, and mostly with editors. Hmm? Mostly with editors. Mostly Girl, with editors. Um, yeah, she's dating all the time. Yeah, she's she's seeing men. She's putting herself out there. The, you, we could argue how much of herself she's putting into dating them. Uh, if they all seem to follow the same criteria and they keep it keeps not working, it's like, well, are you biding your time till Scoop comes in? Or are you biding your time till Peter just wants to commit to you? Or are you just sort of passing through until the next guy or the next job? Or are you really is this really one of your blind spots as an intelligent woman? You can see so much of the world. And this is the one thing about yourself you really can't understand is like, is a, uh, a pattern that you need to break. Cause, uh, and she says her stuff when she's talking about scoop in the women's meeting, she's like, the way I am acting, the situation I am in, if I saw a girlfriend in it, I would, it would be so clear cut to me. I'm like run for the fucking Hills. She's like, yep. but there's something about when you're in it and there are, things about the heart and the brain that you can't connect sometimes like you stay way longer than you should <laughs> boy, do, boy do i know it oh my god we all know it uh-huh it's very and it's so easy to know what our friends should do and then it's so hard to know what we should do and they of course are in the same position i know exactly what all my friends should do and none of them are doing it and i can't blame them because i've never once taken their romantic advice Exactly. And I never will because (laughs) you simply have to live through some things and decide for yourself and being on the inside of something is very different from looking at it clearly from a vantage point. Yeah. There, there was a time when I would talk to uh, a friend of mine about a person I was around and I would sort of repeat some of our conversation to them and the conversations when we had them, I was like, Oh my God, like this is, really lovely we're connecting this gorgeous way and i would repeat it to my friend and they'd be like this is a mess and i'm like i, I was like and I, my my response would always be okay i'm clearly not capturing to you what this conversation was if you keep on thinking it's a mess and they're like no 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 you're not hearing this with you know uh without this person's face attached you need to hear what the words are away from that and it took a long time but eventually it's like oh yeah no that that wasn't great that was nice but that part wasn't great yeah, no, absolutely. Well put. And I would almost share a personal story myself, but actually I won't because no. I shared a little <laughs> bit of my personal life in the Torch Song trilogy episode, which is honestly what I'm referring to right now. Uh don't you worry, y'all. Uh you'll learn more details of that when my own play is finished. 
Yes, exactly. You'll have to buy a ticket to my personal life. I'm so sorry, but it's very interesting. And the working title is No One Tells You When You've Been Handed a Stick of Dynamite Till It Blows Up in Your Face. <laughs> a little long, Matt, but very and good. The working title. <laughs> and uh, and brought to you by my therapist from BetterHelp. This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me, we should take a quick break. Really, I'd like to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. We're back. Wow, what a great break. I feel refreshed, Matt. Do you feel refreshed? I feel so refreshed. Let's talk more about feminism. So I would love to. Welcome. Nobody says that to me every minute of my life. Jesse, can I tell you something about feminism? Yes, tell explain it to me. I'm I'm going to explain it so clearly because <laughs> as a man, and I use that in quotation marks. Only you can know what it means. I, listen, listen. I do not subscribe to the theory that the attributes we have put towards masculinity means you are a man. Absolutely true. That said, I am currently pantsless. Wearing a Kimberly Kimbo <laughs> sweatshirt, sitting next to my Paddington Bear doll, uh, before I go to the gym and work out to the Rock of Ages soundtrack. How much of a man am I? I'm all man, baby. <laughs> that is right. So, as the most man, let me explain something to your woman brain. Please try, but it's hard. It's only that's a what, that's what she said. Honestly, I have nowhere to go with this. I kept trying. I just really wanted to set the most misogynistic scene. I, I know could. we had to do the bit. It's very yeah. important. To do the bit. Well, I was honestly, it was a bit, a bit of a game of chicken. I was like, how far can I go until Jesse just I goes and we're done? I go really far. So. <laughs> and see, I'm vegan. I'm vegan. <laughs> oh God, I wish I was vegan. My life would be so much easier. Listen. I can't because I'm gluten-free, so I can't do both or I won't eat anything. Oh, no. Yeah, because I'm not high-maintenance. I have a disease. Um, Anyway, tell me about feminism. Well, so that's, you actually would like the restaurant that I used to work at, the Little Beat Table. It was a gluten-free, yeah, gluten-free restaurant. Uh, And then people would come thinking that we were just like specialty dietary restrictions, which we eventually were. But we were like, no, 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 we have everything else the reason why we are gluten-free is because there are so many celiacs out there who can't go anywhere. Celiacs represent. That's yeah, the- celiacs should be able to eat a hamburger and oh not worry about the bun. What a sort of like bold thing to say to me. What a sweet, empowering thing. What? That you should not have to worry about a hamburger? Yeah. 
Yes. As a feminist celiac, you oh, should be able to eat a hamburger and not worry about the bun. This is, that's gorgeous, Matt. That's a better world out there. One day. That's going to be my the new working title for my play. That's even better. <laughs> even longer too. And far more specific about something that my play is not about. In for a penny, in for a pound, I say. Penny for a pound. Feminism. Feminism. Um, what was it? There were, no, there were, oh, the Susan character, by the way. Yes. Susan, I think, I, so again, like, Wasserstein in this play, she shows us all these different ways in which women succeed. We see women with jo- get jobs and get to the and get to the top of their field. We see women who get to have successful careers and have uh, families. P- women who just do the family route. Women who are relatively confident and competent, but you no, know, maybe lose a bit of themselves. Women who are. Uh, have are lost their happiness the scene with susan at the lunch table with heidi in act two is funny just in terms of how much it eviscerates the la person yes <laughs> but it is devastating when you see the friend that heidi has lost yeah and the friend is unaware that she is so far gone completely unaware in fact probably from susan's perspective she thinks she's being so nice to even like think of Heidi and sort of bring a piece of her success to her old friend but Heidi just wants to talk to her <laughs> yeah he- yeah Heidi's like I wanted to catch up and Susan's like yeah we're, we are catching up no one eats at lunch and yeah it's it, it, like it's been a while since they've seen each other and as you said like Susan is pitching Heidi a TV sitcom based off of her book, which isn't even based off of her book. It's just, oh, we want to do like a thing about three female friends living in a loft. What if one of them is an artist? What if, you know, she's like, what if they're all in art in some way? One of them's a painter, one of them's a curator, one of them is like a researcher. And Heidi's like, is that interesting? <laughs> Heidi's like, what? And she's like, maybe you could be a consultant on it. And she's like, yeah. what? what? No. Yeah. What? <laughs> and she's like, she's like, if it's successful, it'll make you a lot of money. And she goes, you can help us figure out what makes these women funny. And she's like, I, I don't know what makes anyone funny. <laughs> I just sort of wanted to come here and talk to you about my life. Yeah. And then Susan brings her uh, associate who we knew back in the day. Who's now. It's like Lisa's sister or something. Yeah. Something like that. Like these two women who were in Heidi's life as friends. And Mm -hmm. now they're coming at her as businesswomen. And their success is not something that they should apologize for. But like any person in this world, you have to know when to turn it off and just be with the people who've been with you since, you know, the way back. Yes, absolutely. And there's none of that. Instead, there's this very funny and insane bit about the swordfish. With the butter, yeah. Dry swordfish, no butter. And then she's like, I see butter on this. I can't eat butter. I told them no butter. Well, I didn't listen. Don't bring it back. I don't have any more time. Like, I'm just going to eat it. I don't have time. <laughs> um, but she, but she's not pleased. And but and also, like, they, she complains that they haven't gotten their food yet, that they've been waiting forever. And then the waiter comes over and they order. And I'm like, then you never ordered, like the food didn't come because you didn't order it. Yeah. (laughs) Susan's become kind of the worst. And it's a real shame because we've known her since what, like high school? I don't remember. Yeah. And we love Susan. She's so funny and she changes so much over the course. She brings Heidi to that women's meeting. She's so mean to Scoop, which always feels amazing because Scoop sucks. Yep. She's the one who brings up the Scoop situation at the meeting. She's like, hi. She's like, Heidi's not going to bring it up, so I will. 
Yeah. Which good friend, because she needed to talk about that. It was clearly therapeutic for Heidi. We end up in a great place. That's a great friend who's paying attention and mm-hmm. who says things like she'll drop anything for scoop, even hanging out with me. Yeah. And it's- and like I've known her since childhood. Although yeah. in Heidi's defense, Susan did drop everything at that dance to go dance with twist and smoke boy. She sure did. And twist and smoke is so funny that he can twist and smoke at the same time. So what oh, what else can he do at the same time? Hmm? Hey, I bet you found out. Yep. Both one. fingers, baby. Oh my gosh. I'm blushing over here. My goodness. Yeah, yes. but you might see. I find that offensive to people with rosacea, okay? Listen. <laughs> um, the thing is that Susan is so many things. It's just the thing about Wendy Walter scene that I love is I just believe her. Susan yeah. is so like amazing things and sometimes she fucking sucks. And then her last scene, she's the worst person in the world. And I'd like to think that maybe in 15 more years, they'll meet again and something else will change, but maybe not. I mean, the interesting thing is that the play ends when Heidi's what, like 40 and she has a child. And of course, Wendy Wasserstein famously had a child at the eight, like in her 40s. I think she was 48 or 49. Yeah, 48, 49. She dies like six years later. She dies, yeah. I think, five at the age of 55. Or maybe I'm mixing up the fives. But no, no, you, no, you, you're correct. That's all. This is all correct, Jesse. Coincidence, but, um, and it's just crazy to think because I would like to think about what happens in the sequel to the Heidi Chronicles, the Heidi Chronicles, more Chronicles, harder part two. The Heidi Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, exactly. Take me back through the wardrobe to see like what happens in another 10, 15 years. And Wendy Wasserstein n- never gets that, ironically. She yeah. doesn't see her daughter grow up. Her daughter now is only 23. I looked it up last night because I was like, what happened to that kid? Um was raised by her brother after she died and then Mm. her brother's family after he died um the Wassersteins are not a well clan but it's what was my point here it's just it's just fascinating what she really captures is how people change and it's you really feel like you've known them since back then because the scenes are so heady and believable and full of specific crumbs that really draw you in and we really feel I felt a real loss with Susan it was a real bummer and the only antidote for that was the scene with Peter, which is like just the opposite. But yeah, um, well, Peter. No one in this play is perfect, right? Like oh, there's the there's the, scene where, there's the scene where the where Heidi, Scoop, and Peter all come on uh, the morning. Talk oh show, my god! And Scoop and Peter just talk over Heidi the entire time. Both just talk over her the whole time. Even the the reporters keeps trying to reach out to Heidi, and they just keep answering every question. Yep unbearable and very accurate (laughs) peter peter does not like peter does not answer for heidi where a scoop does at least i don't think so i if i recall peter's biggest faults for talking so much is anytime something is said that he thinks needs to be corrected like the whole um uh how old a woman can be to bear children he's like it's very important to like make sure the world knows yeah, as a doctor, I need you to know. And then anytime he's thinking Scoop's just being a dick, he's like, I have to respond to that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think yeah, I mean, he might talk over Heidi a couple times as well. I think he does. Uh, they both definitely interrupt her at the very least. Yeah. And Heidi, as a character, I don't find any moments in the play where Heidi is, like, necessarily doing anything bad to others. She can be a little selfish and a little obtuse. Yes. Uh, and like not be After aware herself, that I would say you know what? <laughs> treating herself badly yeah she's not always great to herself but she's not necessarily terrible to others 
And I think that's partly because, you know, she, she is sort of a visitor in her own life and in her own generation. She's she's observing everything and not being as fully a part of any of it as she could. And so there's also something to be said about like how her friendships kind of go in and out because of it. Like if if you're not committing to something, how are you supposed to like expect anyone to commit back to you? Yeah, it's true. And it's like that way, I think that you sometimes like give up agency in your own life. And then by the end, she reclaims it. Um, But you're right that she doesn't really do anything bad to anybody because she doesn't really do a lot of anything to anybody the worst thing maybe she does is give that insane speech at, at her alma mater um yeah where she talked about the aerobics class yeah about the aerobics class great insane monologue really unhinged i love it a lot yeah what i like so what i like about that monologue is like she doesn't say anything that's so prophetic yeah what what she ultimately concludes is something that you know always needs to be said we shouldn't compare ourselves right and like yeah. all that but it but she's not giving this like here's the truth ladies and you're all going to walk out changed today she yeah. gives a speech that's sort of like it's not it's not the worst speech in the world because like it's an entertaining story but you're also like where's this going Okay, is, and then they're like oh god is this woman unraveling before my eyes okay well she doesn't completely fall apart but also like she's not completely together at the same time oh 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 okay okay yeah, it's really twisty because at first it seems like she's giving a great speech that's going to have an enormous payoff and it sort of just keeps winding off the road and off the road until it's just like a woman asking why she still feels alone and stranded when she is supposed to feel liberated and like a yeah. part of something bigger than her but she just feels alone. And again, she's asking, like, like she asked Fran, she's asking this room, like, why? I thought we were in this together. Why do I feel alone? And and then it's just over. You know, she leaves. I can't imagine what the room is like that she walks out of at that point. Um, yeah. Awkward speech. But well, it's the, the event awkward. is also called Women, Where Are We Going? So Where in, are we going? <laughs> in a way, her speech is apropos. So apropos, where are we going, Heidi? <laughs> yeah, where are we going with this speech, Heidi? And then she's also kind of saying, like, where like, where have I gone to? I don't know where I am. And I don't know what's next. And I feel like everyone has abandoned me. But also no one knows where they're going yet. Also keep saying they do. Like, what is any of this? What is any of this? <laughs> Great questions from Heidi. <laughs> Heidi asks the really specific questions. What is any of this what is any of this and we all go ha huh, you know what Heidi I don't know either no life is not like a painting no it sure isn't it sure isn't uh, <laughs> it's just great and it's such a funny speech and then it's so it's just like the details of it all that Wendy Wasserstein is so funny the way that the aerobics instructor is called G- Jeanette like yeah. that's funny <laughs> Yeah, she talks about all the different types of women in the locker room and how like the power businesswomen come in with their own heavier weights and their own all, heavier weights from home. Yeah, all this stuff. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, there's so much comedy to be had from just human observation, but that also does provide a great deal of isolation. For sure, and you feel the way the way the amount of detail that Heidi has about this locker room experience with all these women. 
you know that she's an observer of her own life, just yeah. as certainly Wendy Wasserstein is in some ways or in all ways, as all playwrights, I suppose, on some level must be. All good playwrights anyway. All good playwrights. Yeah. Looking at the world and being able to synthesize it into something real. But Heidi really was like paying attention. <laughs> There's so many details to this. And of course, that makes sense. She's an art historian. She looks at paintings. She tells us all about them. She's got great insights on it. But at the end of the day, you can't just look at something from the outside. You have to make choices from the inside. And that's why it's so lovely that we end with just her and her daughter that she chose as like a big decision a big liberated as it were decision yeah yes if she wants a daughter go go get one go to the store one daughter please (laughs) what's the going rate on that five dollars i don't know what's interesting is that wendy wasserstein talked about when the play came out the ending was actually kind of controversial for a lot of women not surprised to hear it (laughs) yeah well because they all thought that the play was ultimately saying once you have a child you'll finally be happy and wendy's like no no heidi's now happier because she's figuring out what it is that she wants and doing it in her own way like it heidi is a specific it's it's why i really hate how we as progressive thinking audiences now any story that is told about a group that is not straight white men that character has to represent the entire community uh it's such a big nightmare and especially back then when it's like these early stories that were so rare to see i mean they're still rare to see honestly Mm -hmm. you do bear the burden of needing to be like the perfect the ideal minority and everything you say ripples out as the only choice for everyone when certainly what this play is talking about is just picking the thing that is going to actually make you happy and it doesn't really matter what that thing is and if she picked job i think a different group of women would feel equally disappointed in that but she can't pick everything yeah it's the thing that's true and certainly the thing that's true for i think wendy wasserstein who who had a child in her 40s never revealed who the father was or what happened but yeah, you she know. really predicted her own future she, wendy had her child through childbirth she didn't adopt whereas heidi adopted um yeah. but yeah it, it doesn't matter what road heidi would choose at the end of the place someone would have an issue with it the only sort of uh saving grace when it comes to these reactions is like usually it takes about two years after the thing comes out and then the community is like okay we can recognize how it's good because you people will now look at it as part of the whole tapestry of works so like for example when like call me by your name came out people who loved it and then people who are like this doesn't represent my story and then after like three years we're like oh well when you put it alongside the 50 other stories that have come out in the last 15 years it's just a really well done one in the tapestry. I'm like, yeah, can we not think of that the moment it comes out? And then uh, truly. everybody yeah. get with it. But that is exactly why we need such a broad tapestry of diverse storytelling that covers so many stories so that we have art that resonates with everybody. Yeah. And it was so rare. I mean, God, if there's a, a point beaten over our head in this play, it's like there are not that many women artists. And so we must talk about them. <laughs> And here's, and that's certainly true for playwrights. I mean, I was told to read Wendy Wasterstein because she is a woman playwright and I am a woman playwright. And and there is like resentment to that. Like, what do we share? And then of course it's like everything actually, but yeah, you know. Well, you're not, you're not required to like her. You're not required to even think she's very good. Uh, but, but it's I all, I, I, what? 
but I do both. I like but her. You do both. And, and we're very glad for her. Well, I, cause I, I agree. I think she was, is a very good playwright. Do I think everything she wrote was great? No, but I also don't think everything Tennessee Williams wrote was great. Anyone who tells you that Camino, uh, Real or whatever it's called is good is fucking lying to you. <laughs> but uh you know you there is sort of like a kinship and a support you want to have. It's like, well, as you know, as a queer person and and creative, like I do want to uh support all the queer works that come out. That doesn't mean I'm required to like them. I can give honest feedback and and constructive criticism on it in hopes that someone who's wanting to make queer works in the future can make something even better uh i am definitely of the mind frame that the most universal stories are the most specific ones the ones that do not uh preach and rather just give you insight into something like it's like a snapshot into someone's world and that is what heidi chronicles is you know it's not there and there are conversations where people talk about like the overall idea of feminism and what does it mean to be woman but (laughs) but but again wendy wasserstein is so good at comedy that it goes down easy and she gives you scenes in which those conversations make sense they're not it's not god damn did you see the new 1776 i sure did matt do you recall in act dose right as they're about to sign la constitution Uh and Adams is all like, it's not perfect. Oh no, what what can we do? <laughs> and, Frank, and Franklin is looks at Adams and goes, how you know, what can we do? We're, like we're nothing. We're just men, and they all everyone starts slowly looking out to the audience. We are all just men, and hopefully history will remember that when they think of us, and then they go back or like there's another. That was like the worst like, moment of my life is when they looked at us. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hated it there's another one where like abigail adams does something that i know for sure is something that they added to the script where she like walks on stage she's like it's i know it's it comes from a letter abigail adams actually wrote to john adams about uh do not forget the women but they definitely tweak it a bit where she's like and everyone knows how amazing women are and we should not be forgotten or ignored because one day we will inherit everything and she like does it on a bevel and and like yeah. looks out to the and looks out to the mezzanine and she's like I'm not preaching but however I am extending my arm as I say all of this and I'm like can you not piss on my leg and tell me it's raining I know well that's the thing about the whole thing I won't I'll try not to get too derailed by this although I'd love to but it's like think of class- where you're at Jesse your on Broadway breakdown get derailed do the tangent do the tangent do the tangent Let me simply say when you're trying to force meaning upon a text that was never meant to say any of the things you're trying to say I guess I get that when any line seems vaguely related to the thing that you're trying to shove in here you want to point at it really hard um but like god that text did not support whatever they were trying to do and frankly like to be perfectly honest I'm never going to forgive them for not letting Thomas Jefferson kiss his wife why why didn't they kiss Matt why didn't they kiss the whole plot is that you can't write the declaration until they fuck and they're not going to kiss. There's a line that says, look how they fit together. They're just like slow dancing. Is it yep. because they're both women? Because I'll never forgive them if that's the case. I'll also never forgive them for not allowing Martha Jefferson to want to fuck her husband. Rather, they gave, her, they gave her the attitude of when they're like, well, we sent for her. And then she gives them a look. I'm like, bitch, you got the letter. What did you think you were coming up for to write the declaration? And, and I just you, have this horrible question. Why are they like diluting that? There's no queerness in the piece at all for a cast that is very visibly queer. 
they're, they are taking away a woman's autonomy to enjoy her sexuality yeah. by, by underlining how much Martha is insulted that she's there as basically um, a flashlight. I'm like, no, no, no. She wants to fuck her husband too. Yes. She's been horny this entire time too. And for once, the text is supporting something interesting about women's sexuality. And now you're going to fight the text. Like, it's yeah. just. And then they make the second half of he plays the violin a mental breakdown. About that was, her. I couldn't, I had no idea what was happening. So fucking. I, I will say like the minute that the curtain went up and I saw that cast on stage, like something like it was like, I felt deeply emotional about that. And then I just wish that they were doing any other play in the world. Yeah. Listen, I like 1776. I think it is objectively a well-written piece. That said, that, that said, I am not so like devoted to it that I'm like, how dare you alter any of the ticks? How dare you do it with women? I thought like the idea of all of a non cisgender male cast. I'm like, cool, let's see what happens. And then it just. In many ways, it is the most I ever enjoyed myself at 1776. And in other ways, part of that was because I kept going, oh, (laughs) but you know, like I, I grew up in 1776 and I loved like the new orchestrations and like, it was very, and it was just fun to see. I just love watching women do anything or or femme people do anything. God, I really hope one of the ad breaks for this isn't still 1776. Which is pretty funny. Because <laughs> it used to be. We used to have ad breaks for that show, but I think we're past that part uh, that one. I think that was just for the beginning of November. I think I'm hoping for the second half of November. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But um yeah, God. I and I really try not to piss too hard on that production because it'll be closed soon enough. But like I love if you're gonna do an adaptation, like a, a revival, please please do it new. I, I want that. I love that. Yeah. I and I still will have problems with it if I have problems with it. Yeah, but I doesn't mean I'm not glad they did it. You know, on some if they level. tried something. I but I think what it is though, connecting it to Heidi Chronicles in a way, is yeah. it it didn't feel like anybody really explored the nuances. They were much more interested in the immediate gratification of a liberal based subscriber audience cheering on any little notion of feminism they could sort of shimmy their shoulders to instead of really digging deep into the complexity of it all similar to the queer element this being sexually driven and like and exploring that being having more masculine traits feminine traits whatever though whatever the fuck those things mean right and then with heidi chronicles it's sort of you know we we see different women have very specific ideas of what it means to be a feminist, what it means to be successful as a woman. And Heidi's just constantly confused. Cause she's like, but she's like, what then what am I? And if you think it's this and you think it's that, are you both wrong? Are you both right? What, like, what is and she, all she wants are answers. And unfortunately in life, we don't get many answers. You just have to choose them for yourself, you know, which and is, that is feminism. There it is. And you get to pick what feminism is. Feminism could literally be marrying a husband and quitting your job and raising a family at home. That's feminism if that's what the woman chooses. This (laughs) is what Charlotte York Goldenblatt spoke of in the season four episode. I think it's called Crime and Punishment. Yes. Where she tells Miranda when she's thinking of quitting her job so she and Trey can start a family. The women's movement is supposed to be about choice and I choose my choice. Yes. And she's right. (laughs) I mean, she chose, she is right. She left her job at the uh, nudging of Trey 
And we don't love that. And also because she and Trey were not a good match. However, Charlotte did choose to get married to him after only knowing him for a month. She chose to get married to him after meeting fucking Bunny. So, but she she learned from her mistake. She didn't realize she was handed a, a stick of dynamite, even though her friends tried to say- I can tell her because it's very easy from that vantage point. But yeah. she picked the thing she truly believed would make her happy. Charlotte mm-hmm. always wanted that sort of life famously on sex in the city. and. Mm-hmm. And she needed it to blow up in order for her to come down and realize how wonderful her life with Harry was. It's, it's, I like, I very much enjoy that arc. It's a good arc on the show. Good arc. It is. It is a good arc. And that's feminism, baby. Pick whatever you want. There's no rules and there's no wrong answers as opposed to there being like everything is an answer. Find your own answer. Pick your own answer. And if it's right for you, it's right. I mean, the whole show, we're watching Heidi just be, like, like she's such a sad girl, which I feel like is most girls, but not all girls, actually, but lots, lots of sad girls out here who just feel sometimes like, you know, if it didn't, if it didn't work out in this way, or like, or like something is wrong with me, that I'm like not meeting these bench part and points, that I'm not hitting these flags, and I'm not succeeding, quote unquote, but there's nothing, there's no right way to live a life. It's no. just what works. And some people have it very easy. Maybe you'll meet your perfect person at the age of 15 and live a gorgeous life together. Or maybe you'll live a gorgeous life alone with lots of friends and or anything in between. I think the important thing to remember always is that it starts with you. Yes. It always starts with you. Um, You have, and I, I can't speak for you or anyone. I can definitely say for myself, a lot of times life is me distracting myself from sadness and the sad I will have sadness flare-ups that can get exacerbated by things and people experiences and romances and jobs that just really fucking cut away at my soul and you don't realize it immediately uh but you eventually build yourself back up and you have in order for someone to be your anchor, you have to also be theirs. And in order to be that anchor, you gotta be strong, bitch. Yes, you do. And that's very resonant, Matt. Certainly. If there's one sad girl in the world, sad girl TM, it's me. And I've been, you know, like Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Also, I'm gonna write that down. I like that. I like what I just said, but keep talking. Please write it down. But I I think that sometimes we this is this is like a personal thing that I've been thinking about all month which is that like how much do I conjure my own sadness how much of it is it a fun part of my personality and how much is it thrust upon me by a world that maybe rejects like fat queer women or and how much of it am I doing to myself because at some point I decided that I don't deserve something or I'm not allowed to be happy because I'm wrong in these ways and it, like, I truly, I think I actually believe that we can put a measure of that down mm-hmm. and put it down and walk away from that and think, well, what I'm certainly allowed to be happy and maybe I just will be, and maybe I'll just move towards the things that make me happy. And maybe I, nothing was ever wrong and I haven't failed at anything and just, we're all different and everything is great is sort of the month I'm having. I love that. I'm sort of in the mind frame of failure is unavoidable and you don't realize you're failing at something until you're pretty knee deep in it. The important thing is to be able to walk away eventually and take some lessons from it. Yeah. Cause you're going to succeed 
again. Just because you failed today doesn't mean you're going to fail forever. And everything passes and you can change and people can change and you don't know what the future holds. I Listen, I could not have told you the last five months of my life recently were going to be the, the most uh, those five months. So I look forward to what the next five months are because they can only be wild. At this I point. could not agree more. And same, same, Matt. I I could not have predicted anything that's happened in my life. <laughs> not at all. Um, and sometimes the surprises are horrible and sometimes they're so wonderful. And it's mm-hmm. just like, just, just be in your life. I yeah. would say. Choose things, try things. How can you take what you've been given and make it work for you? How do you, to quote Kimberly Akimbo. Ah, great, please. When when life gives you lemons, you got to go out and steal some apples because who the fuck wants lemons? Get your goddamn apples, everybody. And that's feminism. And I think that's going to be our our tagline for this episode. And that is feminism. (laughs) We solved it. We cracked feminism for you. It's apples. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that, Jesse, you couldn't crack it until you talked to me. Yeah, a man. a man, famously. I agree. I was just actually going to say that, that thank God you were here because I didn't even know what feminism meant before today. And I can't read either. <laughs> so it was very hard to become familiar with the Heidi Chronicles. <laughs> I had to have it read to me <laughs> by, by my landlord, by, by, by my male landlord. My landlord. Sorry, my landlord is a woman. Oh. Sorry, what's a female bike? Do you mean is that or what's a girl bike? Do you mean like a female doctor? Get educated, Hitler. <laughs> it's one of my favorite 30 Rock jokes when Liz is on the mommy message boards and she's like, We're looking for a girl bike. Uh can uh, she's 12. And they're like, What's a girl bike? Is that like a female doctor, you Hitler? <laughs> yeah, well, what is a girl bike? I feel like they were made so women could bike in skirts and I'm like surely we must be over that by now but whatever I don't know I'm also listening to the office ladies podcast with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey and they talk sometimes about certain things on the show they're like oh boy but uh they they did research and they found out that uh they they never really clocked that women's pantsuits don't have pockets on them and they always know that it like and then they were like, well, let's figure out why that is. And it's, you know, there are it's misogynistic it's oppression, the lack of pockets. That's the worst oppression in our society. It's not the worst oppression. Um, but it's a big problem and I hate it. And I famously love pockets and indeed have written several musical sequences about that. About having pockets. About how women should have pockets, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's famously okay. a song called Pocket Full of Sunshine. Very related, clearly about women and pockets and how we should have them. They're insane. Go look at women's pants. Go look at the pockets they give us. Sometimes they're not even pockets. Sometimes they sew a line into the pants so it looks like there's a pocket, but there's no pocket at all. And I think they're just trying to sell us handbags, but I want pockets to hold rocks that I find as all women <laughs> hold <do>. rocks. <laughs> all women just want pockets so they can hold rocks and frogs that they find on their nature walks. And I think that. It's or you know, your wallet, God forbid. You're fucking and all I want is a Birkin, Jesse. <sighs> Take my pockets, give me your Birkin. Done and done. Done and done. I do. I buy men's coats now because they're full of pockets. Do you know how many pockets you get? And did you know clothes have no gender actually? So I can just, I can just buy pockets. Exactly. 
exactly. What's a woman's pantsuit? Is that like a male? <laughs> male. <laughs> a male man. <laughs> I'll tell you, they sure don't have pockets and everything should. And the moral of the Heidi Chronicles is please give women pockets. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. If listen, if women had pockets, Heidi would have cue cards for her speech at the Where Are Women Going seminar. (laughs) That speech might have gone a lot better. I do love where she's like, she's like, true to form, I did not write a speech. And that's where you're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) And then I'll tell you the only thing that Wendy Wasserstein ever says to me that I don't believe is when Heidi says, I I didn't prepare anything. And then she tells that story. And I'm like, yes, you did. You came up with that on the fly. You said it so gorgeously, but it does descend into madness. I guess yeah. I could consider it as like Heidi's very, very smart, which she certainly is. But um, I'll tell you, it's a hell of a speech. Yeah, it's well, that's that is the double edged sword of being intelligent and articulate is that people don't always realize what a mess you are because you can express yourself so clearly. Yes. And it's like, just because I can say the right words doesn't mean what I'm feeling is any less fucked up. Yep. It might be even more fucked up. And that's why they write the most interesting plays. Mm -hmm. That's also, being a dramatic writer, similar to like any kind of artistic work, like acting, for example. uh, I've mentioned this before. There's a little bit of having to be a sociopath. Yeah. You are capturing the human experience and then trying to package it in a way that can be palatable to the masses. Yeah. And, you know, actors have to tap into their mental well and their emotional well to recreate eight times a week, certain uh, emotions and, and, and whatnot. And that requires some sociopathy. I don't know, Uh, but that's probably not the right word or pronunciation, but who the fuck cares, but. You know what you mean. Yeah, you know what I mean, but there's also, I mean, there's a manipulation to that, that, you know, is hard to sometimes draw a fine line of, of um, health and not toxicity and not have it bleed into your life. I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, but that is, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like there's, you can, you can be so smart. And so creative and you can see the bigger picture. And again, as a writer, you take what you know and you and you pick pieces from your life and see and because you inherently understand like what my work in a dramatic story and and put it in there. And someone who doesn't know you, who hasn't experienced any of it, can watch it and feel something. But then like someone from your life can clock certain things from it and go, I'm sorry. So were you actually upset that day when we spoke or were you just sitting there pretending to be upset and mentally clocking everything I said so you could put it in your play? Yeah. It gets very complicated. Life is art is life is art. And the lines blur and it can be hard to separate them. I often think in stage directions I feel as I'm sort of observing the world around me because or sometimes I'll you know like script my own behavior such that I can because I can and sometimes it's easier (laughs) to work off of a little script um but certainly regardless of how anyone presents there's a deep inner life and often turmoil that cannot be ignored um, and if you try to ignore it, Heidi, then you're just going to fuck up the speech and end it in a really weird place. About your 
I feel stranded. About your aerobics class feeling stranded. On that note, let's take one more break. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back. Wow, each break is more refreshing than the last, Matt. I'll tell I'm you. I'm becoming more of a feminist by each break. I, I learned how to read over the last break. And I learned how not to. And now we're going to switch. <laughs> now we're going to switch. Now you do Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and I do Heidi oh, Kronos. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a play by the least controversial and toxic playwright of all time. <laughs> Yay! David uh, Bennett. Don't ever shut up, David. <laughs> when reading this play, was there any, were there any voices you heard in your head while reading it, like actors who you were imagining in the roles? Because I do that sometimes. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because I, I was looking it up too and I saw that um, fucking Elizabeth Moss did the revival. Um, I saw half of that revival. Oh, did you walk out intermission? Or did you? Yeah, I did, not because it was bad, I had an audition for Jersey Boys and the cat I was informed at intermission of Heidi Chronicles that the main casting director, like the, the person who's really like in charge of all of that, would be leaving soon because it was rather dead at the call and my appointment wasn't for another two hours. And they're like, she's gonna leave probably in the next 45, but there's no one here, so you can just walk in if you want. And I was like, I am not enjoying this enough to miss being in front of Mary. For sure. Yeah. And listen, was it worth it? I didn't end up being in Jersey Boys, but I did get called in for other things. So who's to say? Didn't get any of those either. But for a brief moment, I went, <laughs> worth not seeing Elizabeth Moss act to breakdown. But I and did also, see- like, if you hadn't tried, Matt, maybe it would haunt you wondering if you would have <laughs> gone on to Jersey Boys. Like, I think exactly. you've got to open every door just for your own sanity. Yeah, I would have resented Elizabeth Moss forever. Um, but yes, she, it was really not a very funny production. It was very cold and dry. Yeah, I've I've heard that. And I do believe it because I think it's sort of interesting who we're thinking of. Heidi is often described as like an everyman or dare I say an every woman. And it's like sort of who at the moment is going to be that person. It was so fun to watch, honestly, Jamie Lee Curtis do it in the mm. little TV movie that I obsessively watched last night, where I was like, I'll just watch a clip. And then I was like, no, I will watch all of it. All of it. Um, because it's like, who is that person who's going to sort of like gently hold all of womanhood in her bones? <laughs> what does it mean for that person to be 
Heidi in like a world of of women who who do we want to put the spotlight on as like the center of all of this um and I don't know why so so I guess what I'm really saying it's, and it's interesting too it's a piece anchored in color in, in time it's a piece anchored in a time period and I and I and it's different now to do this play than it was to do it then and to do it every year in between then and now it's mm. a question of like who should lead the Heidi Chronicles if they were to do it again is very interesting to me. I've never seen a woman of color do it. And I think that I would like to see what that changes. I've seen mm-hmm. like an actor of color play Susan in a clip that I stopped. Um, but I just think, you know, like the person I think of is Taylor Iman Jones. Um, sure. But I don't know how that's going to ripple out through the piece um and if it'll make it better or if it will make it like sadder <laughs> well it's like do you go for someone who has really dynamic stage presence or do you go for someone who's really good at kind of being the wallflower like i was thinking like what would nina Ariane do with this like would yeah. she because she is such a vivacious presence and the thing about heidi is like she's not an extraordinary individual you know she's not someone who like is so mind-bogglingly brilliant and in- interesting and leads this incredible life what she is she's very smart she's very kind but like it's you know how like we're how more people are finally waking up to the fact that like the not like other girls concept is very sexist yes height um, like it's not that heidi is quote unquote not like other girls Heidi is and we'll talk about this now as we get into the wedding scene the fight between Scoop and Heidi if there's one thing Scoop gets right is that he does not say that Heidi stands alone as a 10 he acknowledges that there are so many women like Heidi which is great because like Heidi's a smart successful driven woman with who has also empathy and an ability to you know show uh, kindness when maybe she doesn't need to so it's nice to know that there are plenty of women out there like her and that this piece of shit scoop can at least acknowledge that (laughs) now there's a caveat to that statement because he follows it up with and y'all are gonna be miserable yeah yeah he does (laughs) but in not i think there is a truth to it though because when you are when you are smart and are aware that you're smart, when you're able to use your gifts to be successful, it is what you want to do. And when you put all your energy behind one thing and really get so much out of it, there are other things that you're going to want that you'll never get, or maybe you won't get till later, or it won't be exactly what you want. And when you're aware of your value as a human, what you're capable of, and what you're being denied by so many things that are out of your control, it is hard to not let that sadness overwhelm you. We were literally just talking about this, but like so many times the work that we're doing, uh, the people we see, sometimes it's just like a momentary distraction from when you're alone and you're like, and I'm sad. Even though I like me, even though I think I'm smart and I'm capable, I am still sad. Yeah, it's a real curse of intelligence. I think famously one might say ignorance is bliss even um i've never heard that before did you just come up with that i actually wrote that just now i'm a genius good for Um, you you are a genius thank you thank you for noticing that um but i think that there's also like 
there's a way in which piece of shit guys like Scoop make that true. And there's that great little thing that Heidi says in the end in her last scene with Scoop where she says like, maybe one day Pierre Rosenbaum, Scoop's son, and Judy Holland will meet on a plane over Chicago and like, and he'll never tell her it's either or baby. Like, and then maybe it won't have to, like she, she'll, what does she say? She'll never think she's worthless unless he lets her have it all. Yeah. And maybe things will be a little better. And yes, that does make me happy, says Heidi. And it's like, it's like this feeling that some of the the profound sadness is like, is societal and like thrust, thrust upon us the way that we feel that we don't fit or we don't make it or we and if we just were never told these things were wrong or bad would we ever feel anything about them if scoop didn't feel have all these opinions about the whole world i mean could you know could they have been happy together i i don't know i don't like him so i think no but no. you know he would be a different person i guess in that scenario it's a it's just a question of like what what is the thing? The healthiest and, thing Scoop ever did was not marry Heidi. Yeah, which she says, like, I couldn't leave you dangling anymore. That's why I married her. As which we haven't said yet. And then they kiss at his wedding while the dance he's supposed to be dancing with his wife plays. Yeah, he's literally supposed to have his first dance with his wife. And she, the wife ends up having her first dance with Peter. Peter! <laughs> she, she, she invites him on the floor. She's like, have my first dance with me. And then so Scoop has his fight with Heidi and then kisses her and then they dance. Although I wouldn't, I, that kiss isn't really like a, we're going to start up again kiss. Not at all. No, it's like a goodbye, like a painful, twisted. This chapter kiss. is over kiss. Yeah. yeah. It's just crazy because it's at his wedding. <laughs> I oh, love absolutely. the drama of that. Then then like, oh, two, this is a play. <laughs> and then act two, he's all like, I'm not as much in her life as I used to be. And I'm sad about it. I don't know what happened. It's like, what do you mean you don't know what happened? You yeah. got married, motherfucker. You have another life to lead. She's trying to move on. And there's the idea of, we always ask if women can have it all. Men just assume that they could have it all at this time. That he could have a wife and Heidi and everything. And, you know, in some ways he can and in some ways he does. And in some ways Scoop also made a choice. And he gave up Heidi and it was certainly what's best for her because he sucks. But also, you know, everybody just be out here making choices in pursuit of happiness. Uh, Scoop does not seem happy to me. And the last scene that they share, Heidi is the one who seems to have found her way. And mm -hmm. Scoop is like flailing around like a man on fire who can't find the fucking, I don't know how you put out a fire, a sink, stop, drop and roll. Yeah, you know? well, it, Scoop is the, is a textbook example of happiness comes from within and you got to you know, get your house in order if you want to uh, find any kind of peace. It's not about the things. It's not about the achievements. It's about getting your own self together. And he never really got himself together. He was so confident and sure of himself. He never really checked in with what it was that he really wanted, only what he thought he could get, what he was worth. And yeah, as you said, now he's flailing. Uh, there's something else I was going to say. Fuck. Um happens to the best of us it does it really does motherfucker i keep forgetting what else i was gonna say <laughs> something on scoop something on scoop and heidi's relationship oh the the dynamic they have and i actually so you're quoting heidi towards the end about their kids because he he has now two kids and she has her adopted baby and she says uh she won't feel like she doesn't have value and i think the line is actually unless she gives him all of it or something like that and he'll never tell her it's either or baby and 
she'll never think she's worthless unless he lets her have it all. I, I think maybe, I'm- I wonder if my book is different then. Uh, maybe, is this, maybe she finally changed it. Let me see. Where is it? Um, unless he lets her have it all. No, you're right. You're right. Um, that change that changes then what my original thought was, which was like, <sighs> it's hard to know sometimes when you are looking out for number one and when you're just being selfish. It's yeah. hard to know when you're being supportive or when you're just letting someone take everything you've got to give. Yeah. And there is a value you can feel in yourself when someone you think highly of takes from you because you go, well, they're so great and they want what I have. Clearly yeah. that means I am worth something. But then once they have it and you're left with nothing, the fuck. And that is definitely sort of the attitude of their relationship in act one. Act two is much more healthy, mostly due to her own distance. But I would argue she also basically spends the rest of act two in that like remaining decade getting back all the things that Scoop and every other man in her life drained from her, which she was not aware was happening because she was also doing all the other things that she told was feminism, like uh, protesting the museum to get women artists, having a career, writing a book. And it's the emotional relationship shit that she wasn't keeping track of. And that's where like so much of her power was getting drained. So true. So true. And it happens. So, so sneaky, very sneaky how it happens. That is sneaky how it happens. Yeah, God, and ain't that life, I'll tell ya. But it's never too late to go after the things you want. And it's just like, there's such a, 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 you know, I think that you feel sort of Heidi's happiness and it's not like an exuberant happiness in the last scene. It's like a quiet happiness, like something that was wrong feels better mm-hmm. in like a very subtle way. And it's it's lovely. It's not all or nothing. It's not like, and then you get you kiss and happily ever after, fireworks, fireworks euphoria for all of time life is like a big long stretchy thing and we got to watch 30 years of it with Heidi and it's a real it's a real gift to get to watch 30 years of a life really condensed into a little play like this and also you I like I feel it like I we know things at the end like they can reference things that happened to them 30 years ago and of course we remember because that was six scenes ago but we go, oh, yes, remember that? The day they met when they were just children and now here they are 30 years later. Best friends or ex-lovers or whatever they are. And it's just, that's life. And I think it's always, I I love a play like this where you step back and you remember that this is what we have. This is all we have. And God, you better make the choices that make you happy because what nobody's going to do it for you. And there isn't more, probably. So God, aren't we lucky to be here right now? Yeah. Choose happiness, y'all. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It's really hard, but do it anyway. <laughs> it Oh, it's so hard. And so many people keep on people keep on not choosing it. They keep on choosing what they think is what they should do, what they're told to do. What they think they deserve. Which yeah. you know, guys, just so you know, you deserve the world. You deserve every happiness. Well... Some people don't, but not all of you. God, not all of you. But you know <laughs> yeah, exactly, don't, don't, don't be a scoop 
and go for what you are told are the things to do and the people that you think you can get or that you know as jesse so rightfully said that you deserve not and not in a positive like i'm great i deserve a good person but look rather like i'm flawed so i deserve exactly something that sinks me you deserve a good person indeed it's nice yeah Uh, good oh good people are nice uh jesse this has been lovely yes it has been always a pleasure with you now before we wrap things up we have a new game on this podcast i look for (laughs) i look forward to seeing if you can help me with this what we they they are essentially the same game just with different titles we are going to do a six degrees game with two different women i can do one because I'm, I, everyone just knows how much I'm obsessed with her. It's called Six Degrees of Sally Murphy. Steppenwolf Broadway actress Sally Murphy, currently in Downstate, a playwright's horizons, where Heidi Chronicles premiered in New York. Oh. Uh, so we find Six Degrees from the Heidi Chronicles to Sally Murphy. The other one is called Who Lives, Who Dies, Janine Desori. And guess what? It's just Six Degrees of Janine Desori. Well, God, I love Janine Desori. As do I. I can very quickly do original production of Heidi Chronicles to Sally Murphy. Peter Friedman was the original scoop in Heidi Chronicles. He played Tatya in the original Ragtime with Audra McDonald, who was in Carousel with Sally Murphy. Bing, bang, bang. Yeah. Gorgeous. And we can do creative teams as well. Uh, And I think we can, we could also technically do replacements, but I I'm trying not to do revivals. I could do do Janine Desori because Janine Desori just wrote Kimberly Akimbo with David Lindsay at Bear who wrote Rabbit Hole, which starred Cynthia Nixon, who was in The Heidi Chronicles. Shut the fuck up. I didn't even make that connection. Look at you, Jesse. I just was just thinking about all those people. So it's really luck of the draw. This is why we pay you the big bucks. I can't wait for my enormous check in the mail. It's so funny you call it that because uh, that's what I call my... uh... My friend between my legs is an <laughs> because once a year my doctor that? checks on him and he says that's enormous. <laughs> oh, to be a man! Just kidding. It sounds horrible. I know. That's- well, if I ever find out what it's like, I'll let you know. Yeah. Anyway, Jesse, where can people find you if you want them to find you, baby? Oh gosh, you can find me at jessiefield.com or on Instagram at jsfieldtheater. Nowhere else. No OnlyFans, no alt twit. Are you on Hive now? Do you? But if everyone requested OnlyFans, of course I'm inches away from doing that. Just kidding. I want to do an OnlyFans with you, where it's just us sitting in bed in our underwear discussing feminism. Fucking finally, Matt! I was waiting for you to ask me. I'll be there. Yeah. That's how we're gonna keep the podcast afloat. And get income from anywhere you can. Yeah, plus, we love um, gay women and gay, gay men in bed together. It'll be yeah. so platonic. Oh, my God. Listen, Will and Grace was on the air for eight years and then another four after that. So anything's possible. Absolutely true. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram only at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, rate, review, subscribe. Give us nice five stars. Give us a nice yeah. little rating. Yeah. Uh, we are going to take a quick break after this about two weeks because this is coming out right before right around christmas right before new year's and so we're going to take two weeks off uh and then pick this series back up again in the new year what show are we covering i don't know this whole thing has been out of order so join us for that then um jesse as i'm sure you remember we do close out with a broadway diva i'm trying to think of one who maybe is related to the heidi 
the Heidi Chronicles, but I can't really think of any. Uh, all these all these fabulous women don't really sing. SJP does, but we've we've closed out with her before. Um, yeah. Cynthia famously don't. Uh, Gosh, Jamie Lee Curtis. She doesn't sing. Does she sing in Freaky Friday? She doesn't. It's the one flaw in her performance in Freaky Friday. Bummer. I also love how it's like we talk, we kept talking about how Heidi's the uh, uh, every woman, and then in the TV movie, it's Jamie Lee Curtis. So I'm like, that woman is so special. I know. I every know. Other. <laughs> and isn't that the funny part of the world? Telling women like Jamie Lee Curtis, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Collette, what a basic, ugly girl. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that is the most incredible person on earth. And you all thought, can we not pretend? Yeah. Can so, we stop pretending that Tony Collette and Muriel's wedding is? repulsive she is so beautiful she's so gorgeous gorgeous yeah uh one of my favorite movie reviews is the movie in her shoes with tony clad and cameron diaz decent movie it's a yeah it's a fun movie but in the i think it's the times review they're like and you know tony collette is the quote-unquote heavier sister and then in parentheses they're like i love how hollywood thinks a size eight is plus size (laughs) (laughs) it's insane Mm-hmm. Just like from me, big thumbs down, as it were. But I do love that movie. Actually, I carry your heart it's, in my heart. It's a funny movie. Well, well, sometimes funny. It's often very sad. But um, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Here's we haven't talked out with her yet, and this is very old school. But Wendy Wasserstein's next big play, The Sisters Rosenswag, yes, won a Tony Award for one Miss Madeline Kahn. All right. So we're gonna close out. With Madeline Kahn. Yeah. A wed woes, a wed woes, flames on the side of my face. Yeah, Young Frankenstein, Clue, Blazing Saddles, that woman. And what's up, Doc? So good. Anyway. Yeah, so that's it. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll see you in two weeks in the new year. And yeah, have a great time. Uh, take us away, Miss Madeline. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.